take your copy of Scripture today and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. New Testament book of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you have Acts, Romans, and then First and Second Corinthians. Okay, if you're looking on your phone or your laptop or something like that, you can go to BibleGateway.com, type in 2 Corinthians, it'll take you to our passage. We're going to be reading from the New Living Translation. If you don't have any of that, you can watch the screen. We'll have it for you. Now, today we are tipping off a new study, and it's probably, I think, one of the most important, if not the most important messages that we have shared together in my four years of being your senior pastor. We're not trying to hide anything from you. We're not trying to create a, a sexy title. It, it, it is what it is. This is what we're going to talk about the next several weeks. The fact that Jesus is Lord. Everybody say it with me. Jesus is Lord. Yeah, our hope is to bring clarity. I mean, crystal clarity to that biblical claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then let that truth stir within us some courageous conviction that will enable us to be able to stand in the face of some headwinds that will come at us from culture, but also in kind of a weakened theological community where people bristle at the very idea that someone is in control of their life. Like we want to be certain about this and sure about the fact Jesus is Lord. Now, as you look at kind of a survey of Christianity, really globally, it is not difficult to come to the conclusion that there are some interesting things that are taking place and kind of an erosion of sorts of some real deep theological, biblical roots by every measurable statistic. We see the slippage. And what we're finding is today there's a version of the Christian life that's becoming, listen to this description, more self-styled and autonomous. Meaning that believers want to believe whatever they want to believe and they want to do whatever they want to do without any like accountability to the authority of Christ. It's like a veritable buffet of belief and behavior. And, and, and the final say is your own sense of what's right, maybe even your own preferences that's driving some of your opinions. A couple of headlines recently capture like this growing sense of a shift in Christianity. This one is found in the Washington Post. It says, think Christianity is dying? No. Christianity is shifting dramatically. The article goes on to detail just some of the changes in what we would consider standard belief and behavior. It's, it's shifting. Now, maybe you find um, that information to be suspect because of the resource, the Washington Post. So, let's say this. Here's another one. Uh, a Baptist News Press. Look at this headline. Americans' theological beliefs reveal shift in post-pandemic world study shows. Now, I don't think anybody is going to blame the pandemic for some of these fundamental changes, but the conditions around COVID made some of these modifications more 
obvious and maybe even accelerated the change a little bit. Some of the most recent polling data from Barna shows there's this rapid plunge in the numbers of, of Christians who no longer would say, like, the Bible is their source of information and conviction. There's, there's more cultural opinion being sorted in to dictate what we believe and what we do. Now, at the same time all that is happening, Jesus is as popular as ever. People have an attraction to Jesus. But there's this subtle reformatting that's taking place, kind of a recreation of Jesus, listen, in our image. Some scholars refer to a red-letter idealism, a, a particular like of the Jesus we like. But if he goes off script and starts to align with biblical narrative that we're not comfortable with, or he starts to run in a countercultural direction, then Jesus is either ignored, he's silenced, or worse, he becomes re-explained into something altogether different from what's historically true. Jesus is a reconciler. We like that. Jesus is a redeemer. We like that too. But he's also a ruler. And that sometimes we are uncomfortable with. But let's remind ourselves. Jesus Christ is Lord. One of my professors, Richard Land, wrote a response recently regarding a very popular pastor, author, influencer in America who has been revealing some shifts in belief and behavior. And Richard Land wrote this in response to that. He said, when people of whatever background, behavior, or orientation come to God, they must come without reservation, forsaking all to follow Jesus as Savior. We throw ourselves on his mercy and trust Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. He is Lord and Savior. We come on his terms, not ours. It is not a negotiation. In this study, we're going to discover that, that Jesus is Lord and he's earned the right to have that place in our life. We want to recognize and respond. We want to see and submit. We want to know and grow in this truth that Jesus is Lord. Now let me ask this. Why does that matter so much? Like, why does that matter so much? Well, the Bible predicts that in the age we are living in, that there will be a, quote, falling away. Falling away. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. says, let no one deceive you by any means. That day, talking about the return of Christ, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. 
falling away. Some translations call this the rebellion. But that makes it seem like too conscious of an effort of defiance when it's really much more subtle than that. Uh, the, the term for falling away is apostia in the Greek language. Ah means not. Post, stand. To stand not. It means something that was standing in a position very close, but now no longer is. The, the falling away is referencing a group of people who at one point looked like they were believers. They professed in following Jesus, but all of a sudden they fall away. Jesus prophesying about this very thing makes this chilling observation about the pressure, about the dishonesty of the times, listen, that we're living in, which can be so compelling that it just might, listen to these words from Jesus, deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus is warning that it's Possible for a group of people who are well-intending, who profess to be following Jesus, but the pressures that are created in terms of following him become so much that many people turn and follow no more. They fall away from him. Now listen, in the B.C. years, before COVID, We had a hard time imagining this. Like, how could that be? Now, without getting into the politics or anything like that, but can we just agree that, that, that the restrictions and the mandates and the pressure that was put on, you, you saw people who were willing to do whatever just to get out of the house. And so it's completely fathomable now, that people could have such pressure on them and their beliefs and their fellowship of Jesus as Lord that many could just fall away. But if we are clear and certain and possess conviction, then we'll have the courage to withstand all of the pressure because we know and we grow and we follow Jesus Christ is Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, this way of following Jesus, we never give up. Right? There's got to be this tenacity and perseverance to walk in the ways of the Lord. Verse 2, we reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort, distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know this. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it's not because we're not being clear. That's what he's wanting. If, if, if nobody knows the truth, it's not because we're not making this clear. It is hidden only from people who are perishing. Verse 4, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. 
They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ who is the exact likeness of God. Look at that phrasing. Who is the exact likeness of God. This doesn't mean that he's similar but not quite. Close but not completely. Oh no. He is the exact representation of God. Look at verse 5. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We don't, we don't preach our opinions. We don't, we don't preach based upon preference drives. Oh no. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord and we ourselves are servants, your servants for Christ's sake. Now let's break down their preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord. So first of all, let's take the word Jesus. Joseph and Mary were told upon the birth of Jesus to give him that name, Jesus. The name Jesus means God saves. So Jesus here is highlighting that he is Savior. Jesus is our Savior. And then you have this word Christ. It's also the word for Messiah. It means the Son of God. So the Son has been sent from heaven with a mission to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus is the Savior. He's also the Son. He is the Lord. Now, the word Lord has a range of meanings. It first begins with a simple kind of gesture of respect. So someone could call someone else in the ancient world, Lord, and it was just, it was a way of saying something like, sir. Lord, sir, sir is a gesture of respect. Now, in Matthew chapter 8, which is a very important chapter, it's a, it's a pivot chapter of learning about Jesus' lordship. At the beginning of the chapter, there's a couple of people who approach Jesus respectfully for his help. One of them has leprosy. And so he comes to Jesus to request Jesus to help him and heal him. And so he, he says, Lord, sir, sir, if you're willing, like, you can heal me. That's followed by a Roman soldier who seeks Jesus' help in healing a sick servant. And so he respectfully comes to Jesus and says, Lord, sir, sir, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. Now, following these two very respectful like approaches to Jesus, sir, sir, Jesus starts to qualify. Hey, guys, I appreciate your respect, but I do need you to know I'm something beyond a sir. I'm a sovereign. I'm not, just a, I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm something else. And so he starts to qualify. Like if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, there's going to be some demands on your life. Where you choose to live, he gives an example, where you choose to live is not going to be belong, belong to you by way of choice. I'm going to tell you where to live. And your priorities for life, you don't get to pick those. If you follow me, I will pick your priorities for life. 
Now, the disciples begin to recognize, wait a second, there's a shift, there's a turn. He, he's different. He's not just a sir. He's not, this is not just somebody to respect. He, he's, a, he's, he's a sovereign. And so you see the disciples begin to shift. There's, there's a, a storm that comes up. And Jesus, in the middle of the storm, speaks to it and tells it to, for the wind to stop blowing. And guess what happens? Stops blowing. And so the disciples, in seeing what happens, they recognize, wait a second, he's not just a sir. Like, he has authority over the natural world. And they even ask each other the question, like, man, who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? And then chapter 8 of Matthew closes with Jesus exercising authority over the supernatural world. He causes a a demon-possessed, violent-feared man to come back into his right mind. Jesus demonstrates he's just not any kind of kind sir. He's more than that. Jesus Christ is Lord. So go back to 2 Corinthians 4.4. Notice this phrasing again. He is the exact likeness of God. That means when we're looking at the range of meanings in terms of Lord, it it could be a respectful term like sir, but it also points out someone who is in charge. Someone who has authority. Someone who's a ruler. Someone who's an owner and a master. And so when we qualified Jesus' lordship, there's two things about it that we've got to note. The first one is his unique identity. He's God. He's the exact, he's the represent, he's God. Jesus Christ is Lord because he is God. He's not a trace. He's not a mock-up version. He's the actual representation of God. Now, in the Old Testament, The name of the Lord that's revealed, God's personal name, is the name Yahweh. And that name means a sovereign, in control, all-powerful. In fact, it is Yahweh who is the creator. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the almighty king of the universe. And every time the name Yahweh appears... It's translated in our Bibles this way, all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord, large and in charge. Now, over 6,000 times in the Bible, God's name is referred to this way, the Lord. Let's get one example of it, Isaiah 40, 28. Isaiah asked this question, have you never heard, have you never understood the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. Notice the Lord is the one with authority. He is in charge. He's everlasting. He's self-sustaining. He is all-powerful God. Now, Jesus' closest disciples did not know this about him in the beginning, 
but they start to understand who Jesus is. And on one occasion, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked the question, who do you think I am? And Peter spoke up for the group, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The Apostle Paul, writing the book of Romans, makes this direct connection between Jesus and the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that, what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then the Apostle Paul quotes from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament saying, for everyone who calls upon the name of the, look at that, Lord will be saved. And so Paul draws a direct line, Jesus is Lord, to that Old Testament revelation of Yahweh, the Lord, and make sure that we see Jesus has a unique identity. He is God. Jesus is Lord. Now, he's Lord because he's God, but he's also Lord, listen, because he's earned the right to have that place in your life to be your Lord. He is God, so he is Lord, but he's also earned the right to have that place in your life. Consider these qualifications. Jesus lived his life perfectly without sin. He offered up his own life as a sacrifice to pay our sins penalty. He was raised from the dead and he has ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, which is the seat of authority and power. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Ephesians chapter 1 said, God raised him from death, set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments. No name, no power, exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. Jesus has the exclusive right to be our Lord. And he said it this way himself. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is God, and he has the exclusive right to be the way. There's no other religious leader, there's no scientific savior who has done what Jesus has done. He has the right to be your Lord. Now, in the early church, this became the first and the primary confession. Christos Kyrios. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. 
And that bold confession, which was central and core to the early church, gathering in homes and meeting together and identifying themselves as followers of Jesus, they confessed together openly, Christos, Kyrios, Christ is Lord. And that confession got them in trouble with the Roman government. Now listen, the Romans were very pluralistic when it came to gods. They had a whole pantheon of gods. And every place they conquered, they would kind of, they would coalesce and take those people's gods and add to their database of gods. They had a lot of gods. There was nothing offensive to them about having a Hebrew deity, even saying Jesus is God. They'd say, sure, fine, whatever. Worship whoever you want. Not offensive to us. However, when the early body of Jesus began to confess Christos, Kyrios, Christ is Lord, that provoked the Roman officials because they had their own version of a confession. And it was this, Kaiser. Curios. Caesar is Lord. The Roman officials could care less what you qualify in your heart. But once it came out of your mouth, once it became the confession of your life, now there is a rival to the authority of Caesar. And that mattered. Christ, Christ is Lord. There's a story in church history which is known as the Holy Forty. Forty Roman soldiers. Did you hear that? Forty Roman soldiers were asked to make a sacrifice to Caesar, an oath It's where we get our word for a sacrament in church language. There was a sacrament that had to be taken where Roman soldiers pled their loyalty and their servanthood to Caesar. And they had to offer an oath sacrifice and say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. But 40 Roman soldiers said, we'll do our duty. We're soldiers, but we will not confess Caesar is Lord. Because each of them had come into a personal relationship with Christ. And the confession of their mouth was Christ is Lord. The Roman officials said, Well, you won't offer the sacrifice, so here's the consequence. They were marched out onto a frozen lake. They were stripped of their clothing. Made to stand on the ice until they perished from the cold. They put a warming hut on the shoreline and said, at any point you want to recant and declare that Caesar is Lord, you can come and warm up in the warming hut. 
but they stood faithfully on the ice because there's only one. Only one. He is God. He's earned the right to be my Lord. Process of time, one. One out of 40. One. Bailed. Made his way to the warming hut. But one of the officers overseeing their execution saw their devotion, saw their loyalty to Jesus. And he stripped off his armor, walked out onto the ice, and said, I too, I too will follow Jesus. The Holy 40. There's a place in Turkey that still this church recognizes and honors the sacrifice, the martyrdom of 40 people who said it's so important. I will not confess the name of any other. Only Jesus is Lord Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? Seeing the resurrected Christ offered this confession. My Lord and my God. That's our confession. What is Jesus to you? What is Jesus to you? He needs to be your Lord and your God. All throughout the next few weeks, we're going to talk about this more particularly. We're going to dive into it. We're going to challenge our hearts about how we stand in front of Jesus. Is he Lord or not? But sufficient for today for you to process these three things. First of all, do you need to confess Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life? Listen to that bold statement in Romans once again. If you will confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth, believe in your heart, you will be saved. Do you need to confess Jesus is Lord today? Do you need to identify better with Jesus as your Lord? Maybe within the context of your family or your work situation or at school, it's easier for you to blend in and be like everybody else and follow the lead of everyone else. But there's a calling in this in this study, in this series, there's a calling for us to better identify ourselves with Jesus. He is our Lord. And then finally, do you need to welcome his Lordship into a more personal space in your heart? Will you give him the right over those little areas where you've kind of chosen to have your own autonomy? Will you welcome the presence of the Lord to be the Lord of your life? We're going to talk a lot about that next week. In fact, next week may be the most important message I've ever taught. As we zoom in on the legitimacy of Christ's Lordship in your life.